Thank you, Tim. If you don't know, um, you'll see on any Sunday, you'll see several different people coming up front and speaking or contributing, participating in our service. So if you're not familiar with that custom or whatever, we share um, a lot of the responsibilities of worship together with those that are um, able to lead us in the practice of worship as well. Tim is one of our elders, um, so he uh, helps and assists with the guidance, the spiritual direction of our church. He and a gazillion other guys. What is our team up to? Ten, eight, nine, ten guys or something like that in our elder team. It's just incredible joy, great unity. Um, but more importantly, um, uh, a passion for helping steer the church that Jesus has entrusted to us in a biblical in a biblical manner. And so it's men like Tim that allow us to do that so effectively. So thanks, Tim, for those words and for uh, just that that peace in worship. It's been a little bit peaceful for us this morning, which is nice. Uh, as one who never really kept the peace as a kid, um, I was one who always had to ask why. You know how some kids just never are satisfied with the answer you give them? That's who I was. And as adorable as I was... I was obnoxious and I was adorable. Just saying, not really. My hair was all like in my eyes and just, I looked like a, like a beetle. Like I looked like one of the beetles or something. It was terrible. Anyway. And then in the seventies, none of the colors went together. You know, you had prints and patterns and different things that just didn't belong in the same. And then you were getting a picture in front of none of this is in my notes. Then you get a picture in front of the curtains or the couch that had all the same crazy busyness of design and everything. It's just, what were we thinking? Right. But as a kid, I would always ask why, and no matter what answer an adult gave me, that wasn't enough. I wanted to dig in a little bit more, and I don't think it was because I was curious. I think I was just obnoxious. I think, why? 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 And they were giving me an answer, and I wasn't really paying attention to the answers. But in that pursuit, though, there is some kind of clue for us as followers of Jesus, and there should be one in our culture that the more we ask the question why and actually pay attention to the answer and take the next step deeper into what that answer reveals, we will start getting to a place that God has intended to meet us, which is at the heart level or what we would say is the center of our worship. We are worshipful beings or we are worshiping beings, I should say. We were created with the capacity and the desire to lift other things up so we could follow it. And when it's not the one true God, as we'll hear in the text this morning in Acts 17, when it's not the one true God, it's like a, you know, figuratively speaking, we make all these little trinkets and put them on the shelf. We, we create other things to give our lives to because there's something born within us, part of our created order that, that causes us to desire to worship another. And so the more we ask why, let me give it, let me give it for instance. Uh, if I say I want to get up early, I want to start getting up early. And then that person that just keeps asking why says, well, why? Well, because I want to get a head start to the day. I've been sleeping in a lot lately. Why? Well, because I want to be more productive on my job. Why? Well, because I want to take my work seriously. Why? Because I don't want the boss to give me a hard time. And why? Because I want to keep my job. Why? So that I can make some money. Why? So that I can pay my bills. And I, you can go a little closer. Eventually, you get to the things that have your heart. 
Eventually you get to the things that it's not just about waking up early or just not about getting a better start to the day. It's because you see it as a means to an end to attain the thing that you worship. This is who we are. The society we live in is structured around the gods that we worship. So the calling for you and I, we're going to see, Lord willing, in the text here in Acts 17, is to examine life at the heart level, to examine life at the worship level, not just on the surface level. We get accustomed to living life based on the things like it's good for us to get up early to get a more productive start to the day so we could be better at our job without going much further as to why. Why is that a fuel or a motivation in my life? And what does that mean about my, what is that, how does that intersect with my relationship to the creator of the world? Examining life at the heart level or the worship level will reveal blockages, the things that get in our way of hearing what God wants from us, but also under the Holy Spirit's guidance, it will, re- it will also um, reveal pathways to hope. So we're going to play catch up a little bit here because Acts 17, where we're coming in at verse 16, is after we've skipped a couple of stories. We've had a, a, a couple of changes in our um, worship uh, last week when we spent more time in prayer. We didn't go back into Acts. And so this week we're going to just skip ahead to um, catch up to this particular story. Paul is finding himself in the center of where mankind is pursuing knowledge, pursuing self-enlightenment and growth. He's finding himself in Athens where all of the culture is sitting around kind of holding their chin and musing all the possibilities of what would explain the meaning of life. Athens is the hometown of the great thinkers like Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno. It's like if we took um, Harvard and Yale and Princeton, Colby, right? Uh, threw it all in the same, throw and take Cambridge and Oxford from across the pond and everything, throw all of them into one town. And now you've got the, the, the kind of environment that was being built here in Athens, an incredibly intellectual society, an incredibly deep thinking society, but also one that was loaded, I mean loaded with the little figures, if you will, the gods that they worshipped. Now, our series title in this portion of the book of Acts, as we uh, see it through to the end, is, 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 asking the, is making the statement, this is how you set the world on fire. So we're seeing an, ignite, an ignition going on of the flame of the gospel that's just starting to burn all through that region and now becomes the thing of which we base our faith on and still practice today. So obviously it has a lasting impact that's survived for thousands of years. But this particular story doesn't necessarily seem to fit the same narrative that we've seen all along. Paul or the others could just show up and strategically find those people that they could work with. And then the story usually ends in almost sometimes like a Hallmark kind of fashion of like, and many believed and followed. Yeah, there was some beatings and imprisonments along the way, but, but, but there was usually this great impact that was made almost immediately to where we're like, that's where a church was birthed. And then we would read the letters to those churches. This story doesn't seem to have that same ending immediately. If you look at the end of our passage, at the end of the chapter, in verse 33, it says, So Paul went out from their midst, 
But some men joined him, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Not a huge hall numerically, not a gigantic flourishing impact based on all that we're going to see here. So why would Luke still include this? It seems like a great speech and a great setting, but it doesn't have the results. Well, I think because for one, he's including it in the eternal record. He's wanting uh, to be faithful to the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved through men, the Bible says, as they wrote or penned the Bible. That's why the Bible has many different authors, but one superintendent, if you will, where the Holy Spirit would speak through all of these individual writers. So Luke, following the leading of the Holy Spirit, said, I'm going to record this because it happened. But also there's a demonstration here of what it looks like to plant seeds. That, that we can start something that we may not see the results in until the harvest is due and maybe the harvest isn't due for way, way, way down the road. This is, I think, included here to prove where growth comes from, what success really looks like and who's in charge of it. Paul would later say to the Corinthians, he would say, so what neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Paul is being here a willing vessel to simply be faithful to plant a seed, not pouting or demanding that he see certain results, which do not come in this text. Ironically, though, the gospel over the next 200, 250 years is going to sweep through and transform this region. It will have its day, but it isn't at this moment. What I'm hoping we see as we get into this text here in just a moment is that our cultural challenge, which there are many, and it's, and it's what we should be paying attention to, but our cultural challenge is very similar to what Paul is facing. And this passage is going to give us more than an evangelistic masterclass, and it really is. Most anybody that will preach on this particular message that Paul's given is going to say it's one of his finest. It's one that we should be emulating. We can dissect and say this is how to approach it. We'll get into some of that. But even more than it just being a masterclass on how we communicate with culture, I think this message is here for us too. What God, what Paul is going to say about God is something that even the American Christian church has wandered away from in many of our beliefs and practices. That there's so much of what Paul will say about God that we need to reclaim and take back into our hearts and say, this needs to guide my life. I need to give myself more to this than I have. So I'm hoping it's a bit of a twofer today. That yes, we're going to learn how we say these things to other people, how we engage in a culture, but also let it wash over your soul a little bit and encourage you and say, I've forgotten some of these things. I've walked away from some of the truths of these things rather than having them transform my walk in Christ. Because not only does outside culture search for meaning and fulfillment outside of Jesus, but if we're being honest, we do too. We ask for the Lord's grace. We have his Holy Spirit within us that leads us to places that doesn't, don't go as dark or deep perhaps as others might. But we still give in in various ways to the things that are proven to be lesser gods than the one true God. We need to hear this today too. Because when the church begins to offer their idols to the love of Jesus, to the forgiveness of Christ, that's when we can in turn help the world around us and the culture. So let's not skip a step. Let's not uh, ignore the inventory that we get to take today and just focus on the they's and them's of the world. 
What happens is that believers, first and foremost, are able to expose the gods that are hidden below culture's surface. We've been given insight into what those gods, small g, are in our culture, and we need to get more equipped and better practiced at seeing them and finding them for what they are. Again, we don't just live on the surface. We don't just take things at face value. We look at the motivations and the meanings under everyone else's actions, but even our own. So let's get into the text in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy. That's from a previous um, uh, story here. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? If you think that's derogatory, yes, you've read it correctly. Babbler is not just not making any sense, but it's it kind of a, an idea of a, a bird that just picks seeds from all these different places and kind of amalgamates them all. It's like he's just borrowing from everyone else's logic and he's trying to stir them all up in the same stew. And it's looking down on this is nothing that transformative is what they're saying. But others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And they said that because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strength. Oh, I should do this in more highbrow. This is really the, the way this is being delivered. Uh, uh, but pardon me, chap. It's really what they were coming across. Like you can already tell that the level of disagreement or, or, or offense, if you will, that's coming back to Paul is, is a little bit more restricted. He's ready to, to be on the higher pedestal. May we know these new things that you're teaching, that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Not all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their... Now, I'm sorry. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They prided themselves on their hunger and pursuit for more knowledge. It says they would do nothing else but sit around and try to attain more and more information. Somebody else's philosophy. So we, we need to hear more what this chap is saying. So what does Paul do? Well, the text is telling us that he's assessing their condition. He's looking around in this culture and he, he's, in, he's, he's witnessing everything before him, but he's recognizing that they are full of idols. And he's not wrong. This isn't a wrong assessment. If you and I would walk into that area and see the 30,000 plus gods, literally, that were in that area, we'd say they really love their idols. They got a lot of gods. Some would quip and say that it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find another human being. Paul is actually seeing something more than just they got a lot. You could look around America and you could say the same thing. You could say they got a lot of stuff. But we know that beneath that description isn't just we accumulated a lot or we possess a lot. It's that it possesses us. And this is what's happening here. He's seeing that, that really the better meaning of this word translated is more like they are being smothered by these idols or they're under the weight of these idols. 
you and I both know from experience and from witnessing it in other people's lives that the more we accumulate, and I'm not just talking about material things, but it could be pursuits, it could be any of these kinds of things, that the more we accumulate that isn't in Christ does take hold. And we do feel like we're walking around in a form of oppression or how do I get out from under this? I don't know how to release myself from the weight of this. This is what Paul is assessing. They aren't just religious. They aren't just educated. They are under the oppression of idolatry. So he experiences some anger. He's angry at how oppressed they are. The, the, the words the phrase here says that he, his spirit was provoked within him. Again, in the English, it's a little bit soft. Really, it's a violent reaction. Something really deep and transformative is happening in Paul's soul. Maybe he was just there. I don't think Paul was ever on a day off. But maybe he was just there to shop the marketplace or to hang out with the people or to get to know some Jews and point Christ to him. Take it easy. But something in him changed. Something turned the corner from going from just being in the environment now to caring deeply for what he was seeing going on before him. It's a very violent reaction. But this, we don't see anywhere that Paul crosses the line, says wrong things, has to apologize, ask for forgiveness. His anger isn't directed at the people. His anger is directed at the oppression. Paul, no doubt, would have known Jesus' warning in John 10 that says the thief, who is Satan, comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he's seeing this happening in this culture. He's saying that that Satan has come and he's stolen their affections from the one true God to the little trinkets and the statues and all the things that they had. No doubt, beautiful and ornate would have been a spectacle to see. But Satan has stolen their affections and stolen their worship. And he's killing the relationships that they otherwise could have because as we give ourselves to idolatry, we ruin everything else around us. And no doubt he is witnessing the destruction that Satan is causing in a society that could have done so much good for so many others. Instead, it was inward looking. He saw Satan's hand all over this, I'm sure. And his spirit was more than just stirred up. It was agitated. It was angry at what he was seeing. So he's going to approach the culture. He's going to engage in the culture. And this is where we start paying attention to like, how does he do it? How do I do it compared to how he's doing it? And whether or not I just see this as that's somebody else's job. There aren't that many Pauls in the world, so he's going to handle it. But I'm, I'm a somebody else. I'm not Paul. I think we need to pay attention to what he does. It says that he was in the synagogues and in the marketplace. We know he's going to be in the synagogues. Because that's who he approaches first. He sees the faithful Jews, shares the um, scripture's prophecy of the coming Messiah, points to the person of Jesus, says he certainly did that. But he also engaged in the marketplace, the public square, the agora, they would call it. And this is familiar to us, not because we have a lot of that around here. We're not in a big metropolis or in the big city like we would be in, in New York or something like that. But we see the center of business and politics and art and philosophy. We see all of that. But it's not necessarily distanced from us because we live in a central main community with smaller versions of those things because we carry it around in our pocket all the time. 
The Agora has now taken place on our cell phones so that we're brought into the business of the world. We're constantly bombarded with politics and we're seeing art and lesser versions or uh, 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 broken versions of art before our eyes all the time on our phones. And we're certainly being inundated with the philosophies of man every time we scroll and it can be communicated to us in 10 or 15, 20 seconds length of time over and over and over again. So Paul says, I'm going into that marketplace where all of these things meet because that's where they are held under the greatest oppression. And he reasons with them every single day. It's kind of fun here because what he's doing is he's communicating with them in their cultural context. Socrates would have approached things from a a question and answer, a, a discovery kind of aspect. It's dialogue. It's back and forth. I'm going to investigate your premise. If I can poke holes in some of your premise, I'm going to come at it again, that kind of thing. It was a back and forth, give and take. And Paul says, this is fun. I can do that. So he engages with them according to the uh, culture's even mode of communication. But yet he's still got the stirring anger. What does he do with this? Because he's got this move, this break in him that he's got to do something with that energy. But what we see instead is because he's got a humble confidence in the truth, he's able to maintain his poise in the dialogue. Oh, I could can't, I could make an entire series out of this point alone and how we're conducting ourselves in the public square that we feel these things truly we do because we care about righteousness justice we care about the honor of God we care about those things because they've been given to us by God's own grace to to carry that mantle and be his ambassadors but the way often we go about doing it destroys the entire approach destroys the truth of what we represent it seems that culture itself is losing its poise. We can't say things to one another without chasing other people away, or we can't say things to one another without us feeling like superior to somebody else. It's critical for us to look at what Paul is doing here. He would, he would also explain his actions, but he's, he's showing us by example. He would say in Colossians, let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of work. And it's so much easier to be me. It's so much easier to fly off the handle or to retreat, whatever your you-ness is about you. It's so much easier just to do that. It's much more difficult to season your speech with grace and salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That would limit the amount of people we engage with, wouldn't it? Doesn't it get too easy to kind of say, okay, blast. I'm going to hit 200 followers with my thoughts on this, my strong opinion, my bold take. If we had to be careful about how we answered each and every person, we'd be a little more gracious, perhaps more thoughtful. Just throwing it out there. He encounters two specific aspects of philosophy wrapped up in the Epicurean and Stoic um, schools of thought. The Stoics are your moralists. Now, I'm going to be very simple, high level. It's all my education will allow, but also this isn't the point of the whole discussion. 
So there's a lot more to Stoicism and Epicureanism, all these kinds of things. But suffice it to say, the Stoics were your moralists. They were the ones who would say, we're going to grind through whatever life hands us. We're not going to put much attention on pain or pleasure. We're going to move through it all just to be above it. We're going to be moralists. We're going to be grounded. We're going to be true to um, the fabric of our being, if you will. They believed in absolutes. They believed that the meaning of life, the driving force, was to be good. Epicureans, on the other hand, this is a kind of a counter philosophy, they were relativists. They were a little bit more like we'd hear nowadays, your truth is good for you, my truth's good for me. They probably didn't say it in those terms, but it all birthed that. They were atheists. They prized personal freedom and autonomy over having to gut it out or to endure suffering. They would rather avoid pain and deny that it even existed. Their meaning of life for them was to feel good. So you've got the moralists, the Stoics, who are like, we got to be good. Then you've got the Epicureans who are saying, I need to feel good. And you can see already that biblical Christianity doesn't hold to one of those things to the extent that they're in isolation of the other. I'll explain that here in a second. What you end up finding is with every culture, eventually we it reveals its philosophical weakness. When the screws get tightened, when suffering comes, all of these stated philosophies that are good in theory, that give me my own freedom for the moment or my own purpose in the pain for the moment, when suffering comes, they don't really hold up in the long term. That culture reveals its weakness. And what Christianity does is it walks into that space and says, there's something higher for you to see. There's something bigger for you to fix your eyes on. To the stoic or the moralist, the one who believes in self-mastery and the one who's ignoring the pain and even ignoring the the, the, uh, pleasure, Christianity walks in and says, no, don't be too quick to dismiss the suffering. There's beauty in that. It counts for the purpose of another. You and I, as Christ followers, we say that I could be counted like Jesus, that I could look like him in his sufferings, not just in his glory sitting on the throne, but I share in his sufferings. It counts. Not only is it for my own growth, but it's for the encouragement of others. If I deny it, if I move too quick through it, who gets the reward for that? Me, because I survived. But that isn't the goal in this. The goal is how does it point towards Christ, the one true God? Self-surrender before God has its purpose to the Epicurean, to the relativist, to the one who believes in self-fulfillment and the avoidance of pain. Christianity walks in and says, no, wait a second. You've been developing your whole life at taking pleasure from others. You've taken advantage of all of those around you and you thought that would bring you fulfillment, but it's only bringing you emptiness. In Christ, we get to give to others sacrificially. And guess what? Feels pretty good too. It turns these things upside down. The cross of Christ comes and and changes the landscape of all of these dead-end philosophies. So just again to repeat point number one, believers can and should expose the gods hidden below culture's surface. Let's get into a little bit about how he does that. Point number two is that believers need to uphold the greatness of God above culture's gods. Paul's continuing in his assessment of this culture. And he's noticing that they're at least making the effort. They're making the attempt to some degree. In verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, 
Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, in our cynical culture, I'd be tempted to look at that as being disingenuous. He's just blowing smoke at them so they feel good. Like, I'm going to tell you something nice about you so I can come in on this side with the right hook. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's too sincere. He's too thorough for that kind of thing. He's not pandering to them. And also, more importantly, Paul's not threatened by their paganism. Paul isn't somehow going, oh, this problem's so much worse than I thought. I don't know what to do here. And he's like looking and scrambling. And how do I do this? And he's on his heels. He's walking into this with purpose and confidence because he's well acquainted, intimately acquainted with the truth. So he's saying, no, wait, there's a, a message for you to hear. And it isn't in your devotion to these gods. I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Again, there's a, a nugget for us here. In 2023... Not being constantly offended by the pagan practices of pagans will allow us to find some common ground from time to time. Please don't think what I'm explaining here is that we always have the same ends and all that kind of stuff. But if we're being honest, like, you know, you look at in healthcare and stuff where people are like, um, you know, it seems like the driving force with every commercial, every um, hospital visit is our wellness and making sure we get every day on this earth that we that we are due and we deserve and everything that healthcare, especially in the Western culture, becomes a god. That long life and perfect health and best days and living your best life and all that sort of stuff becomes this experiential thing that people give their entire lives towards, whether it's in their profession or if they go and make all these appointments and have all these things. And it can easily be one of the great gods on the shelf of American culture. And it is. Now, if Christians go around being offended by that end goal all the time, rather than saying, well, they are still conducting good health practices that as stewards of this earth and our bodies and the mankind around us and stuff, that we can also partner with some of these things and also do good medically and health-wise, we just don't have to ascribe to all the gods and the end result. Why? Because we know that our life is temporary, that I'm borrowing this bag of bones, and then I'm going to change, turn it in someday. And my hope doesn't end as I go in the grave, that my eternity goes on forever. So whether my life is plagued by perfect health or given blessed by perfect health or plagued by sin and uh, sickness and disease, this isn't it for me. I don't have to put all my eggs in this basket. And so we can do both in a sense like walking and chewing gum because we recognize the gods of the culture, but we don't necessarily go to war on all of these things constantly. <clears throat> so Paul is assessing their attempts, but he's also taking, again, his approach to their culture very specifically. Verse 23 says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. I'm going to introduce him to you. These guys were so smart. They were so intellectual. They were like, even though we have created, that's not what their language would be. Even though we've discovered these 30,000 plus gods, we're smart enough to know we probably didn't cover all the bases. So we're going to put a placeholder in there and then we'll keep adding a new one every time we discover a new aspect of a God that needs to be worshiped. But until then, we're going to call him the unknown. We're just going to cover all the bases. We don't want the unknown God to get ticked off with us. <clears throat> so Paul brilliantly steps into that moniker and says, the one that you don't know, let me introduce him to you because he exists. Listen to his language. I've observed the objects of your worship. You've got the unknown God thing going on. 
even in verse 28, he's going to say, you know this to be somewhat true. Even some of your own poets have said this. He's using the voices of their culture. He's quoting Taylor Swift. If Ronnie Hood were here, I'd have to get his attention back again after mentioning her name. But anyway, um, (laughs) he's using whoever the greatest philosophers or the loudest voices of the day are and stuff. He's not really quoting Taylor Swift, but if she existed, then he wouldn't have been afraid to do so to point out even some of those things are pointing to the fact that there is a God that you do not know that you need to get to know. Culture's Bible is quoted through its news and its entertainment and all of these sorts of things. If you want to know the Bible that culture studies, pay attention to its loudest voices. All cultures unknowingly, unknowingly express their desire for what only God can provide. There's some wisdom here in not tuning it all out. There's some wisdom here of paying attention to what they're saying. Not so that you can be influenced by it or not so that you can be dragged out of the will of God or anything like that. There's wisdom to not get sucked in, but to be aware. To use their own voices back in their direction to help them see what you're chasing, what you're pursuing will not satisfy you. Has it yet? So that's a little bit about Paul's approach back to the culture. And what does he say as he steps into this opportunity? He's going to address these elites with holding up high the goodness, the greatness of God. This is the part, as I read this paragraph, I want you to just kind of let this wash over your souls and just think about all the things that distracted you this week, all the things that clamored for your attention, and yes, even your lesser worship than the one true God. I want you to be reminded, because Paul is going to just lay it out brilliantly here for us. As he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not that far from each one of us. You see, what Paul is doing is he's saying, you you say you don't know who God is, but I do. He's a creator. He made the world. This would be very radical to an atheist, of course, as we know, because they're prevalent in our culture. You really believe that? You believe that he just poof made stuff? To a pantheist, which is what the Stoics were, that God was in everything, was in all forms of nature and all this sort of stuff. They would say, you think there's one above the others instead of a shared collection of gods? This would be a radical concept to this culture, just like it is becoming an extremely radical concept in our culture, is it not? You think, you babbler, you think he created this, has the planet spinning, yeah? You believe two by two into the ark, right? You believe that's cute. So adorable that you believe that. Guess you needed the crutch, right? This is what we hear and sense and feel from the cultural response. He says, no, he's the creator of the world. He is the ruler of the world, which makes perfect logical sense. If he created it, then he should be the master of it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't dwell in temples made by man. The best you can create is nothing next to him because he created the one who's creating the temple. 
This is what we do. We look to contain God. And he says, you can't contain him. He is the, he is the maker, but he's also the rule, uh, the ruler and the Lord over it all. If we don't have a high enough God, a ruling God, we don't have God at all. Elizabeth Elliot is a famous uh, missionary, former was a famous missionary who served alongside her husband Jim in the 50s in Ecuador. And after um, losing her husband and many of their work colleagues, their fellow missionaries at the hands, or I should say at the spear tip of a brutal tribe who they were just going to evangelize, just going to tell about the hope in Jesus Christ, and five of them lost their lives in that altercation. She later on, 20 or so years later, was giving a speech on those experiences and made this point about God being the ruler, the Lord in the heaven over earth. She said in her speech, the night before we sang, the night before all of this happened, we sang, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. How ironic. They were singing in praise, God, you are our great protector. And they lost the thing most dearest to them, which was their own lives. The next day, five of us were speared to death in the course of their obedience. She asked the crowd, she goes, what does that do to your faith? God is God. And if he is God, he's worthy of my worship and service. She continues, and I'll rest nowhere but in his will. And that rest is infinitely, immeasurably, and unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. And she quotes somebody else, says, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. God is the creator, he is the ruler, he is Lord, but he's also the giver. He's a benevolent dictator, he is one that has all the authority but gives out of his kindness and his love. Paul says he wasn't served by humans, but instead serves us. He's the one that gives us life and breath and everything. And he's also the controller. Now you're starting to rub up against the intellectual crowd who want full autonomy. They want to be able to figure everything out. Nobody is telling them what to do. And he says, no, actually, he moved the chess pieces or he moved the pieces along the, uh, the risk board or whatever. He developed the countries and the boundaries and he gave purpose to all people to serve in his plan. This would be offensive to the snobby Greeks who saw them as above everybody else. Paul's saying, actually, all those other lesser thans than you, they have a part in his will as well. He's the controller and he's the revealer. And this is what they needed. This one that you said is the unknown God. Well, he knew that they would seek God. He's allowing us to feel our way towards him. This is funny language coming from Paul. He's always so direct and kind of imperative and everything. And he's making it sound a little bit like, you know, we're kind of wandering in the dark going, I think I'm getting closer to him. I haven't quite found him yet. He says he's allowing this to happen, but he's actually not that far from us. You keep doing that. You're going to bump into him. And that's my presentation to you today. He's getting them to see that in Christ is the revealed image of God. That is the revealed glory of God. The one that they've been bumping around in the dark wanting to know. They just didn't know it. So in verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance, God overlooked it. Doesn't mean he wasn't engaged, but he let it go for a long time. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to have a form of self-discovery? No. To grow in their intellectual capacity? No. He says the action that you need to take is to repent from your sins, to turn from your high and mightiness, to turn from your intellectual pursuit, to turn from your idolatry of all other gods, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that being Christ. And on this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The center of Paul's message, this should be the center of our message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, nothing else we believe or get feelings from or we feel like we've discovered out of religion, none of that has any meaning if he didn't walk out of that grave. The payment for our deepest need, which wasn't enlightenment or health or any of these other lesser gods, our deepest need was the forgiveness of our sin and that payment was secured in a new life that rose from the dead. Jesus said, here's the um, proof that I have that I can forgive your sins. Destroy this body, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. Now, the center of the Athenian culture, as we come to the end here, was themselves. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. You have 30,000 gods. It seems like they're ready to worship. But really, if you think about what false idols are, is they're creations of our own interests, our own intellectual pursuits, our own cravings of our hearts. We make idols out of the things we want or the things that we've discovered, the, the things that we've kind of figured out. But we still have that thing inside of us that wants to worship. So we're like, I'm going to make it a God. But all that that is, all that idolatry is, is holding up our own versions of what we think God is and what he's like. The center of the Athenians is themselves. And any belief system that doesn't have Jesus at the center is ultimately cannibalistic. It's ultimately self-destructive. If, if all we have is to hold up what we figured out, then our end is right in plain sight. As Elizabeth Elliot said, if he's not big enough, if he's, if he's small enough to be understood, then he's not big enough to be worshipped. Our culture claims to be a pluralistic society where many philosophies are allowed. Where you do you, what you believe, that's fine. I'm okay with that. These people reacted the same way our culture does as soon as it starts getting personal. We start talking about things like resurrection from the dead, repentance from sins. Verse 32, it says, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, remember, hand on the chin, we'll we'll hear you again about this. They had no intention to. Uh, we're curious about new philosophies. Uh, we'll entertain you a little bit more when we get around to it. Very dismissive. Culture's fine when you and I have a very personal faith. When we say, hey, I got off drugs because of Jesus. They're like, that's great for you. So glad you're clean. I'm glad God has meaning for you in that regard. Some of you have seen counselors or therapists that have encouraged your pursuit of your own religion because of what it benefits you. Can't share it with them unless they're just charging you by the hour. Then they're like, yeah, tell me more. We'll hear you more about this. Or maybe your positivity because you've become this engaged, electrified person and you've all found it in Christ. We're like, oh, I'm so glad you're doing this. You're getting all this from from God. That's great. Or self-esteem or whatever things that they also hold up and worship. 
But once the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is put before them, attitudes start to change because you got to do something with that. If he came to die for the sins of the world and you're part of the world, then you have to deal with some form of the confrontation that I'm sharing with you. We have to expect those things. We have to expect things to get awkward and uncomfortable, but we also have to step into what having a personal savior really has done for us, that he has forgiven me of my sins, that he has given me new life in Christ. He has risen from the dead. Believers shouldn't be the source of offending others. We don't go out of our way just to be obnoxious and brash. We don't go out of our way to to offend people just by our own personalities. But we are to be the messenger of God's greatness above lesser gods. And we can't stand by. There should be something that stirs up within us that creates an anger at the oppression that people are living under. And when we start holding up God's greatness above those lesser gods, don't worry, that will be the offense. Our goal shouldn't be to distance or isolate ourselves from culture. It's so easy to do now. We're so frustrated. We're so exhausted. Every other day, there's a new thing we've got to deal with. And it's, it seems like it's getting more and more depraved all the time. And all that. So it's just so easy to just check out. But, but Paul did something different. He didn't just stew in his anger. He engaged with his compassion. We want to pursue their rescue. We want to point them towards hope. For those of us that are following Christ, let's start with surrendering our own idols to God's greatness. I want to be able to look at a culture and point them to hope and point them to forgiveness, but have it come from a place of sincerity and my compassion because I too know what Jesus had to do in order to forgive me. If you're a philosopher, I don't mean like a studied one or even a practicing one without Jesus today, stop hiding behind the false gods of Personal effort, as we saw the Stoics doing, or pleasure-seeking, as we saw the Epicureans doing. Those things have only left you empty, and you know it. You recognize that you keep pursuing more and more, only to find less and less. Peace and purpose can be found in Jesus, in the forgiveness of our sins through his shed blood. That's the central message of the gospel. He is the greatness of God that is the only remedy for our emptiness. Let's keep our view higher on who God is. Let's be less entangled, less distracted with the surface gods of our culture. But let's also point others towards hope, shall we? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for all that you do. I thank you, Lord, for the hope that you give us beyond our comprehension and understanding. Lord, forgive us for all the efforts that we take to know every answer to every pondering and question that we have. Sometimes, Lord, you just bring us to a place of rest and quiet trust by not having the answers. And it's good for our souls. Help us to build our faith muscle. Help us to trust in you more. As you lead us into darker times, we know it, we recognize it, see it all around us. But Lord, your gospel light doesn't dim, it only shines brighter. So we want to carry it. We want to be faithful to it. But Lord, we also want to be transformed by it ourselves. Keep us broken before you. Keep us ever aware of our need for forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that that awareness would turn into a, an obvious compassion for those who do not have that hope. So thank you, Lord, for putting us in the thick of things. You could have picked what we would have perceived to be an easier time to be alive. But you put us in the midst of all of this. We see all of the stuff going on. And we get to be the ones 
who get to be aware of these things and proclaim the message that you've given to us to proclaim. So whether we feel equipped for it, whether we feel good at it, doesn't really matter, Lord, because your voice is going out of our mouths. All we bring to the table is our willingness. Speak through us, Lord. Give this world your hope. In Jesus' name, amen.